It doesn't take much of watching the news or looking on Facebook to see that our world is a really messed up place. It's not just messed up, it's broken and it's people are hurting. Every place we turn our heads, we see people that are looking for something to give life meaning. It's not that God has forsaken man, but that man has forsaken God. And we have kept him out of the schoolhouse, out of the city hall. We've kept God out of the theater, out of the concert halls, out of the clothing stores, out of homes, and even out of churches. God is left outside the door. Tonight, we have, there's a story of a man who was burdened about the state of the people, of his people. His name was Nehemiah. And tonight, I just want to look at Nehemiah for a few minutes. And we can learn a few things from this book if we're going to make an impact for God in a broken world. So would you look, look with me in the first four verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump into Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, then words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came. He and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump in. Lord, thank you for this evening that we get to gather together. Thank you for um, the folks that you've brought in tonight. I pray, Lord, that it would be an encouraging time, that you would work in our hearts um, about this, um, this matter of helping others in our world around us. Lord, I pray for the Master Club ministry going on um, in the other room, that you would uh, continue to work in the hearts of those young people and that you would bless them this evening. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. And I pray that you would help us all uh, to walk closely with you the remainder of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah. A couple things about Nehemiah here. Um, Nehemiah, first, I want to see Nehemiah saw something. Oh, really, he heard it. Nehemiah saw what his people back in Jerusalem were going through. He wanted to know, in fact, when some of his brothers came from Judah, from Jerusalem, he said, what's going on? How are, how are the people? How is everybody doing back home? He wanted to picture in his mind's eye how those people were. And so he asked, how are they doing? Nehemiah knew that the reason he was sitting in a palace room in Persia was because the people of Israel had rebelled against God. And as God promised, he scattered them across the world. Now, Nehemiah pictures their condition. In verse 3, it's the, the word is great affliction and reproach. And the wall, of the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. He pictures their condition, hard lives and suffering the scorn of their enemies all around them. It's really neat when you read some of the things that Sam Ballot and Tobiah say later on in the chapter um, as they're mocking what the Jews are doing, trying to rebuild the wall. But here they are suffering hard lives. They're in great distress, and they're being reproached and scorned by the enemies. Nehemiah realized, correcting the social problems they faced, that would help, but that's not even the solution. Far more important is correcting the problem that led to the social problem. Every social problem of our world 
is either outright sin or it developed because of sin. And no government or community program is going to heal the disease by treating the symptom. And, and treating the symptom of a hard life or, or the reproach of the enemies wasn't going to heal the problem be, until they got back to the root of it. Why are they in this reproach? Why are they in this distress? Well, in, verses, um, in verse 6, let's jump down there. Let thine ear now be attentive, Nehemiah is praying, and thine eyes be open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now night and day, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses." Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Nehemiah knew the reason why he's in Persia, the reason why there's distress and reproach on the people in Jerusalem, was because they had left off walking with God. They had left off following God. And really, every social problem that we can see in our world around us, you turn on the news... And every social problem you see is a result of people not right with God. People living life for themselves. For any, for any other idol other than the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah, he saw what was going on. He knew the people needed to come back to God. So my question tonight is, do we see? Do we see what's going on around in the world around us? Sometimes I, I, I go, to, go to my favorite news website and I start scrolling and seeing all the headlines, and I start thinking, wow, this world's a messed up place. I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe that's happening you know, over there in Washington, D.C., and what's happening at the Capitol, and, and all, all these things that are going on. But am I really seeing the true reason why we're in this mess? Or am I just caught up in the hype and in the sensation of what's going on? Do we really see? Secondly, Nehemiah felt... Notice what he felt. Notice what happened after he heard these words in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down. This news affected Nehemiah. He didn't just plunge on into the next thing in his schedule. When he heard what happened to his brethren, he didn't just say, okay, that's nice, and then just turn on the next Netflix show. Nehemiah sat down. But not only did he sit down, it says that he wept, he cried. Now, I don't cry a whole lot. I, I don't. I, I wish I could a little more. You know, if I could flip a switch and say, no, I'm going to cry a little bit more, I would. Because sometimes it takes a lot to bring me to tears sometimes. Nehemiah came to tears here over, over his people that were living hard lives that were being mocked and reproached. He felt what they were feeling. He felt it. So Nehemiah saw, he felt, he sat down, he wept. Then it says he mourned. He was in sorrow of heart. In chapter 2, he goes before the king, and the king says, you look sad, why are you sad? You know, I don't, I don't keep sad employees around here. I want happy people in, in the palace. Why are you sad? And he saw it was sorrow of heart. He mourned. Then it says that he fasted. He said, you know what, this is important. I'm, I can't even eat right now. I'm not even going to eat right now because I'm going to fast. Nehemiah felt for the problems of these people. Our hearts are going to be burdened when we allow our eyes to see people around us trying to live without God and see their lives falling apart because they have never possessed the new life of Jesus. 
When we see that, our hearts will be burdened. Instead of seeing others as rungs on a ladder or as drivers of slow cars on the highway or as annoying voices in the restaurant, we ought to see people as souls and see where they are and feel for them. Do we feel for others? I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm, I'm sorry about your hard life, but, you know, and then, and then go on. Um, our, our church building, Maranatha in Shelby, it's right behind the Bojangles. It's also right behind the hotel in town that's, you can get the cheapest hotel room in Shelby is in that, in that hotel. And there's a lot of folks that come over from that hotel and, and sometimes they come in and sit in church. Sometimes they knock on the, knock on the door when we're in their office and uh, they're, they're asking for help and this and that. And, and I listen to some of their stories and my heart is just sad. Some of the choices they've made in life and where they are in life. And I wish I could just do something and just, you know, wave a, wave a wand over them and fix everything in their life, but I can't. I can't fix everything. I can tell them of Jesus, but I can't just fix what they have. But sometimes we go through life and, and we, we, we see somebody and we, we don't feel for them. We say, oh, that's nice. You know, I'm sorry, it stinks to be you. And then we go on our way. I'm just telling you how I feel sometimes. I just, I just, I just brush it off and move on because I don't feel what they're feeling. There are a lot of people trying to make life work without God doesn't work for me and it's not going to work for them either so I need to see where they are I need to feel thirdly Nehemiah believed this is neat this is neat verse 5 he starts this prayer that ends that takes us all the way to the last part of the chapter he begins this prayer and we see a few things his belief is expressed in his prayer and here's his belief God can do something and God will do something. I think if you could sum up the rest of the chapter, God can do something and God will do something. Now, Nehemiah believed in God. In verse 5, it says, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. A lot packed in there. But that first term that he uses, O Lord, there's the word Jehovah. I, tell my, I told my oldest daughter, the name Jehovah is like God's first name, if he had a first name. It's that self-revealed name God gave to Moses and said, I am that I am Jehovah. So Nehemiah believed that God just, he exists. I believe Nehemiah also believed that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Nehemiah displays faith and belief in God. He says, God, you exist. You are the Lord. Not only that, he goes on, he says, the God of heaven. This is a neat term that's used in Ezra, Nehemiah, the book of Jonah as well. The God of heaven. This is not just a God sitting on a shelf somewhere that can't do anything for you. This is the God who is in heaven that made everything. This is a powerful God. People need to see that the God of heaven is my God. Because we can't see heaven, but we can see what the God of heaven does in my life. Others should see that God supernaturally leads us in the miraculous ways that he provides for us, the change that he works in our lives to make us Christ-like. People should be able to see that our God is the God who is in heaven, that he is a real God. Nehemiah goes on to describe the Lord God of heaven. He calls him the great God. 
God is well able to answer Nehemiah's prayer. He's about to ask for something pretty big, nation-shaping, he's going to pray for. And he believes God is well able to answer his prayer. He is great. 2 Chronicles 2.5 says, Great is our God above all gods. Psalm 135.5 says, For I know that the Lord is great and our Lord is above all gods. The psalmist knew by experience God is a great, God is a powerful God. Jeremiah 10.6, Jeremiah says, There is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great. That's good news on a Wednesday night. We have a lot of things that we're going through in life. And just to remember, our God is a great God. As Nehemiah believed, we should believe too. God can do something and God will do something. Not out there, not across the world, but right here in our lives. And right here in our neighbor's lives. Do we believe that our God is great? Does that show up in how we live our life? Do we believe God could work out those impossible situations that we have? The other term that Nehemiah uses is the great and terrible God. This word means that God is to be feared. God is holy. We have to respect. We have to obey him. He's not a God to trifle with, a God of a vending machine sort where you just punch in what you want and out comes whatever you want. But no, he is the God that's on the throne. He is holy. He is righteous. We must know God if we're going to believe in him. And not just a textbook knowledge. I spent six years of my life in college. I learned a lot of things about God. But just because I know a lot of things about God doesn't mean I know God. Our knowledge of God must not be dry textbook material, but experiential knowledge of the God who saved us and allows us to walk with him. He's a person who allows us to love him. We can know him. We can be his friend. Know his heartbeat. If we do not know God, if we do not spend time with God, we're not going to have much concern for the lost. Our hearts won't be touched with the infinite love that God shows to the lost. Sin will be shallow from our perspective unless we know God's holiness. Knowing God is a daily walk. And when we stop knowing God, we have nothing to offer others. But the better that we know God, the better that we can trust God. Nehemiah knew God and he believed that God could and would do something. There's the following terms. It says, uh, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him. God keeps his promises. Nehemiah knew that. God keeps his word. He could think back to a couple covenants that Nehemiah could, Nehemiah could look back on and say, Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of his family. And he was going to give him land, and all of that had happened. He could think back to the promise that God had made to Noah, the Noahic covenant. I'm not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. And Nehemiah could say, you know what? God's kept his promise. What about the, the promise that God made to Israel as a nation? I will be your God, and you will be my people. In Exodus chapter 19, God made a covenant with them, and Nehemiah could look back and say, God has been the God of Israel. He's done some miraculous things. This promise that Nehemiah calls to attention is out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. 
Nehemiah thought back to this passage and he saw the nation follow it exactly. In verse 8 is that quote. If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Israel had kept the first part of the promise. They had not followed God, and God scattered them. And now Nehemiah is praying that God would fulfill the second part of his promise and bring them back to Jerusalem. That's a big deal. That's a nation-shaping request that Nehemiah is praying for. Nehemiah believed God. If he's kept his promises in the past, we can have confidence that he's going to do them today again. It's kind of scary stepping out into full-time deputation. I'll just be transparent with you. But I've seen God do things in the past and take care of us. And I know he's going to in the future. Because he's done it before, he's promised it, he's going to do it again. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He's also a mercy-keeping God. There are some people in my life that I don't take my problems to. Because if I did, I know how I would get well, you should have done this back here. You're like, stinks to be you. That's not who God is. God has mercy. God has grace. Now, God shows extra mercy to those who love him and keep his commandments, as it says, I think it's in verse 5 there. Um, mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. So God has mercy available for all, but God shows mercy to those who come and ask for it. God's mercies are new every day, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, Psalm 32.10 says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. This is the same word that when Jonah was thrown overboard, he was compassed about with water. Like all around him, there was water. And for the believer trusting in the Lord, all around you is God's mercy. God is a great God. He is to be feared. He's the God of heaven. He keeps his promises and he has mercy new for us every morning. We must believe God if we're going to make a difference for him in our world. We can see our world around us. We can feel for them. But we have to believe God if we're going to make a difference for him. We have to believe the Holy Spirit's going to convict men of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. We must believe that God would use little old me and lead me to a soul who's looking for God. We must believe that God will work in the heart of those who have heard the gospel but have rejected it time and time and time again. But believe God will still work in their heart. So my question is, do we believe? Do we believe that God can and God will do something in our world? Next, Nehemiah prayed. We've already looked at a little bit of his prayer. Nehemiah's burdened heart and his belief in God came together to fuel his prayer life. It says that he continued in prayer because uh, in chapter 2, four months later from chapter 1, four months transpired between chapter 1 and chapter 2, and Nehemiah is still praying because he's still bothered. Because when he comes in before the king, it says that he was sad in his presence. Nehemiah was concerned. He had a burden to see Jerusalem, the place where God had said his name, be restored. 
And he didn't let this concern just fade away from his heart. It's so easy to forget things. To be bothered about something for a while and then after supper, have a good meal, have a piece of chocolate, forget about it all. You know? But this is not one of those concerns that Nehemiah let slip out of his mind. He said, no, I'm going to be bothered about this. I'm going to keep this in my heart. Four months passed from the time he heard the news to the time when he's still sad and burdened about it in the king's presence. Now, throughout his prayer, Nehemiah does a few things. He confesses sin. He, can, he agrees with God about several things. Who God is. Who he was. Nehemiah confessed his sins, the sins of Israel. He stated that he believed that God would forgive. He confessed, he said the same thing about what God had said in promises. He said, God, this is what you said in your word. I'm going to pray your scripture. I'm going to pray your word back to you. And said, you said this. I pray that you would do this now. That you would bring the people back into a right relationship with you. And then you'd restore them back to Jerusalem. We must pray, if we're going to make an impact in our world, pray that the Lord would send laborers. Pray for boldness. Pray for doors of opportunity. Pray for strength in the face of difficulty. Pray regularly. Pray fervently. So my question here on point four is, do we pray? Do we pray? Lastly, Nehemiah volunteered. Nehemiah saw. Nehemiah felt. Nehemiah believed God. Nehemiah prayed, and now Nehemiah volunteers. We see this mostly in chapter 2, where the king asks him, what's going on? You, you look like you're sad. In verse 3, he responds to the king, why should I not be sad? Because Jerusalem's ruined. And verse 4, the king says, well, wh what do you make request for? And he prays again in verse 5 down through the end of the chapter. He says, can I go back and do something? He volunteered to go and do something about the problem. His was not a fake concern. Uh, he had the ear of the king as the king cupbearer. He could have gotten together a whole bunch of people and said, why don't you go back? But no, he said, I'll, I'll go. I'll volunteer to go. You see, long before this day, Nehemiah had already surrendered to go. And when the, the opportunity came to go and volunteer, he said, I'll go. And the Lord just let him. Nehemiah's heart was tuned to the heart of God. And when God finally opened the door, Nehemiah walked through it. Volunteering for this meant leaving his job, his home, his life in Shushan. Now you may think, oh, I'm not able to do what Nehemiah did. I, I see that there's a lot to do for the Lord, and I want something to be done. But I'm not really in a position to do it. Well, that's where Nehemiah was for four months. And then one day, an opportunity arose, and Nehemiah prayed, and God threw a door open, and Nehemiah walked through the door. Maybe you're in this four-month period where you say, I, I, I'm not sure what to do, but I want to do something. Well, keep that concern in your heart. Keep praying. And I believe one day God will open a door and he'll say, walk, walk this way. And he'll give you that opportunity. Have you volunteered yourself to God? Some can pray, some can give, some can send, some can go. The question is, are we willing? Are we volunteering? Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. If you would, I would like to compare Nehemiah chapter 1 over with Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Just two minutes and we're done. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38. Much more familiar passage for a missions message. But when he, speaking of Jesus, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power. Jesus saw the multitudes. He saw their despair. Jesus felt and was moved with compassion when he saw them faint and wandering around with no guide. Isn't that the picture of the world? Jesus spoke for us to believe. The harvest is plenteous. God has a lot he wants to do. And he wants to use us. Jesus tells us to pray. Pray and ask God to do something. And then Jesus sends. It's really interesting. In verse 38, Jesus tells the disciples, pray this. And then in verse 1, the very next thing he's doing, he's sending his disciples that he told to pray. I'm afraid that's how it often works. We pray, and God says, why don't you do it? I want you to do it. He's looking for all of us to surrender our lives to his leading. Now, the Lord's leading my wife and I to Brazil. He's leading our brother here to Cambodia. Uh, He led the Pates over to the Ivory Coast. He leads many people many different ways, many different places. Bruno heading back to Brazil. All over the place. He's sending you to your families, to your workplace, to your community gatherings, to your town. Maybe the Lord one day will tug your heart and call you far from home. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, volunteer. Say, Lord, I'm concerned about what I see. And I'm not just, it's just not, I'm not skipping over it. I'm bothered. I'm burdened about it. I believe that you want to do something. Lord, I'm praying that you would do something. And Lord, if you want me to do something, I'm volunteering. Give me opportunities. Opportunities to live for you. Opportunities to speak for you. Help me to see those. Show me those doors and as you open them, I will walk through them. So may we allow the Spirit to help us and use us to show his love and grace to this world. I thank you so much for the opportunity to come tonight and and preach and share our presentation with you. And uh, Brother Capel, thank you for letting us come. Um, May the Lord bless us as we strive to live, knowing that the example of Nehemiah, but even more of Christ, that we have followed that example this week. Brother Capel, would you come and close us out?